April 20th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a comparative democracy seminar with Joshua A. Tucker, professor of politics and affiliated professor of Russian and Slavic studies and data science at New York University, the director of the NYU Jordan Center for the Advanced Study of Russia, a co-director of the NYU Social Media and Political Participation Laboratory, and a co-author of the award-winning Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post. Tucker is a co-author of the recently published book, Communism Shadow, Historical Legacies and Contemporary Political Attitudes. The talk was moderated by Quentin Main, Associate Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. The seminar was co-sponsored by Harvard's Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies and the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. To uh, welcome Joshua Tucker to our Comparative Democracy uh, seminar series, uh, which I uh, co-run with my colleague Candelaria Gray. And today's event is also co-sponsored by the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. Uh, Josh will be talking to us today about his new book, uh, co-authored with Princeton Professor of Politics Grory Popelechis, titled Communism, Shadow, Historical Legacies, and Contemporary Political Attitudes. Uh, the book will be published by uh, Princeton University Press in, in just a few weeks' time. It's out. It's out. It's out. You heard it first here. It's out. Um, as part it's of shipping it. from Amazon as of two days ago. So if we see you like open your laptop and <laughs> you know what you're doing. Um, as part of the new series in political behavior, which is edited by Tally Mendelbergler. Uh, Josh comes to us today from NYU, where he is professor of politics and director of NYU's Jordan Center for the Advanced Study of Russia and co-director of NYU's Social Media and Political Participation Lab, which is doing really exciting and cutting-edge research and developing methods for harvesting social media data to help us better understand the drivers of electoral and protest behavior, among other things. Uh, Professor Tucker specializes in comparative politics with an emphasis on mass political behavior in East Central Europe and the former Soviet Union. And he is the author of the book Regional Economic Voting, Russia, Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic, 1919-1999. Uh, he has published widely on elections and voting, the development of partisan attachment and public opinion formation, as well as mass protest, especially following electoral fraud, and the role of social media in facilitating political participation. Professor Tucker is also one of the co-authors of The Monkey Cage, which many of us here are avid readers of. Launched in November 2007 and published by The Washington Post since 2013, The Monkey Cage provides a forum for political scientists to draw on their research and speak to pressing issues in politics and important uh, policy debates. So with that, I'd like to hand it over to Josh to present on his book. Thank you so much. Okay, great. Thanks, Quentin. Thank you uh, so much for having me today. It's always a, um, a pleasure to be back at Harvard and, uh, and a little intimidating, too. Yeah. I feel like I go around and give these talks everywhere, but I come here and I feel like I'm a graduate student again. So anyway, it's a real pleasure to be here and a great uh, honor uh, and very happy to be able to share with you a talk about my book. So here it is. The book is out. This is what the cover looks like. Um, and it is, uh, as I said, available for purchase at Amazon as we speak right now. Um, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk to you, I'm going to give you first some background on the overall project that, let, that where this book has been a part of. Then I'm going to talk to you about the theoretical framework that we developed for the project. Then I'll talk to you about the methods we developed in order to sort of test the theoretical arguments we had. And then, because book chocks can be a disaster, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you results from one chapter, but which will be indicative of the type of research that we're doing throughout the book. 
Um, so the motivation for this project comes from the fact that going back to sort of the beginning of the post-communist transition, there was this original assumption that communist, post-communist societies could be this sort of tabula rasa, right? And I sometimes refer to this as the heyday of constitutional lawyers and economists, right? If you build the institutions, people will behave as the models say they're going to behave, right? And of course, any of us who work on post-communist politics and probably pretty much anybody in the world at this point knows that that was sort of grossly overstated, that it was not just the case that this was a tabula rasa where you could plop down institutions and rules and particular constitutions, and it would behavior would flow as if it had nothing to do with what came beforehand. So the pendulum swam back in the other way. There's tons of really good books that all pick up on different points about the fact that uh, the fact that this was not particularly the case, and lots and lots of people draw on legacies in their research. However, in terms of the focus specifically on legacies, as opposed to just utilizing legacies in terms of other things, in some ways, the approach to sort of how legacies mattered was quite ad hoc. People would just invoke it in different studies in different ways that was important at the time. A lot of sort of more explicitly things focused on legacies tended to be kind of just so stories about particular legacies in particular cases, or even this kind of residual variable thing where something turned out differently, and so then you go back and say, oh, well, in the past under communism it was like this, or in pre-communism it was like this. And then, somewhat surprisingly, as I'll get into in a second, for an argument that actually hinges on the idea that things were different, in po that are going to be different in post-communist societies, most of the research actually took place within the region. Right? Any sort of comparative studies were comparative within the region, not, as I'm going to argue in a moment, the way you sort of want to be testing to see a legacy effect, which is comparing inside the region and outside the region. Um, and, then for, and then finally, most of the work, and this is the sort of main motivation here, most of the work, and some of it's been quite amazing, on the effects of legacies in post-communist societies and post-communist politics focused on institutions. Um, so things like democracy, corruption, and not on individual level behavior. So that's the sort of background story why we started getting interested in legacies. And we've thought about, we wanted to think about this effect of legacies on individual level behavior. So in this particular book, we look at the effect of legacies on attitudes. And this, this becomes the second motivation, right? Which is, when you sit down and you think about the types of attitudes one might associate with being inculcated by a Marxist-Leninist regime, right, you do find, and this is data, and I'll explain the data in much greater detail later, but you do find that when you look across 20 years of data, the first two decades of post-communist politics, hundreds of thousands of interviews with people from around the world, you find these systematic differences where post-communist citizens are less supportive of democracy, less supportive of markets, much more supportive of state-supported, the state-providing social welfare. And then, interestingly, and I'm going to come back to this, it's not going to be the focus of this talk, but I will come back to it at a few points during the talk, you do not actually find this pattern in terms of gender equality. So we, where we think about the sort of emphasis from Marxist-Leninism on social equality, that's the one exception. And I'm gonna, I'll come back to that at the end of this. It's not the focus of this talk. But across democracy and markets welfare, you find these key differences. So the goals of our book manuscript were the following. First, we wanted to see, these are from bivariate regression analysis, simply controlling for the year of the survey. We wanted to see, did these differences in opinion, do they really hold up? And we look at them in more detail. But then conditional on the fact that they do, and they did, except in the case of gender equality, we then wanted to come up with a theoretical framework that allows us to assess the extent to which these differences in attitudes are, in fact, legacies of Soviet communism or not. Then, to the sense that we were going to have different types of uh, legacies that we could look at, we wanted to see which of these were most important. 
And then we wanted to, as it turned out, develop a methodological approach for doing so. Now, this took a long time. Olga, who's here in the audience here, I think saw us working on the methodology five years ago at a conference in Oxford. So all this took a while to sort of do all these different things. But the ultimate result you're seeing here today, there's been a series of articles that have applied this approach to different types of questions. But this is the book that we have now, Communism Shadow. And this is the way that the book is set up, where we introduce the sort of puzzle, we introduce the theory and then the methods, and then we apply our analysis and our approach to looking at these four different areas, gender equality, state versus market, social welfare, um, and democracy attitudes. And then in a final empirical chapter, we look at actually how all of these things vary over time. You'll see in the analysis I'm going to talk to, everything's kind of pooled. In a final empirical chapter, we break things down by year. Now, what I'm going to do in this talk to sort of give you a flavor of the book but make it manageable as an actual talk is I'm going to give you a little bit of the theory and the methods, and then we're going to focus the analysis for this talk on social welfare. There's some interesting stuff we do with that, and we'll see a little bit from Chapter 8 as well. So that's the plan for the talk today. All right, first question. Why study this in post-communist countries? Why not study this in post-authoritarian countries? Or why not do Eastern Europe as opposed to former Soviet Union? And... The basic argument we want to say is that there's just a lot of attractive features about studying post-communism for studying the effects of legacies. Um, so you have a set of countries that get this treatment of a distinctive set of shared political and economic institutions. But crucially, these are countries that actually had different pre-communist trajectories. And very importantly, there's a high degree of exogeneity in the rise and fall of communism. So what's this? This is this sort of classic endogeneity problem, that if we want to look at the effect of communist legacies on attitudes held by citizens after the regime falls, we might be concerned that it was precisely those attitudes that led to the regime's falling in the first place, right? And the same thing for when it, it, it's institutionalized. Now, if you put aside Russia, which is a big bracket in this particular case, but if you put aside Russia, the exogeneity, the sort of shock that leads to the imposition of communism in most of these countries, and the shock that leads to the collapse of communism at the end of the communist period, is as close as we're ever going to get to a sort of exogenous shock simultaneously felt on so many countries in the real world. Is it perfect? It's not. Of course it's not perfect. But it's the best example of this we're probably ever going to get in this regard. Um, moreover, unlike studying regime legacies of military regimes that have been in power for 10 years or looking at uh, other shorter periods of time, if you want to think of this as an experiment, the treatment effect of exposure to communism is actually quite substantial. Right? It's about 45 years in East Central Europe and about 70 years in the former Soviet Union. So we get this strong and a lot of other legacy studies that look at legacy. Sometimes you have interrupted periods of military war, interrupted periods of democracy. This is a strong, consistent exposure effect. Furthermore, there's significant post-communist variation in the trajectories of the regimes. Also, if you happen to dislike uh, comparative cross-national research and you only really believe things when it's within one country because you don't believe you can actually ever control for all the factors that distinguish countries, this gets you an act and a bonus where we can actually get within country variation in a single case. So we rerun all of our key analyses looking just at the variation within Germany where we can hold a lot more constant. And then finally, as comparatives, as people interested in post-communist politics, uh, you know, we wanted to sort of, we think there's an inherent interest in essentially getting a sense of what the lasting effects are 
of the sort of largest, most large-scale experiment that we've ever really had, certainly in the 20th century, the largest sort of social political experiment in history. Maybe the Catholic Church, you can argue, is a larger social political experiment. But like certainly in the 20th century, this is a massive event. As social scientists, we care about legacies as a concept, but we also want to understand what are the lasting effects of communism. And finally... I'm speaking for myself a bit, you know, as I saw more and more interesting research being done on these kind of legacy effects, I just became increasingly convinced, right, you become increasingly convinced that if you want to understand post-communist politics, you want to start to get a handle on what these legacies are. So that's the motivation. That's why we're doing this in the post-communist world as opposed to some other connection of countries. Now, what's our argument? As I said, I showed you these divergences in attitudes towards democracy, markets, and attitudes towards social welfare. Well, there's a whole lot of explanations you can have for where these divergences come from, but that we can essentially pull them into one of two basic explanations. So the first explanation is that it has something to do with living in a post-communist country, that there are certain characteristics that post-communist countries share that distinguish them from other countries in the world, and that there are certain determinants of attitudes that are related to demographics or economics or politics, right? There are sets of things that are common around the world that determine people's attitudes or that are linked to people's attitudes. And when you take these particular combinations of how economic conditions are or what demographics look like in post-communist countries, they're different from other countries in a way that can explain away the differences in attitudes. Or to put this another way, we could explain the divergence in a way that is due not to the fact that people live through communism, but that people are living in these post-communist countries that have these characteristics. The alternative explanation is that it could have had something to do with actually living through, personally, the experience of communist rule. So let me go through each of these in much more detail. So in terms of what are things that could distinguish post-communist countries from other countries? Well, you could have... Differences in demographic factors. Imagine a stylized world where the sole determinant of attitudes towards democracy is how much money you make, right, and, or, or how much education you have and how much money you make. And if it turns out that the world over, wherever you have people who have a lot of education and don't make a lot of money, they tend to be grouchy about democracy, and that post-communist countries have an abundance of people who have a lot of education and don't make a lot of money, that would explain why you might have less support for democracy in post-communist countries that has nothing to do with the experience of those people living through communism. We could also make similar arguments about economic factors, right? It could be the case that if you are going to see a sort of massive, and, and we have been working on this project a long time, so when we started working on this project, I would say things like, imagine if you saw GDP collapsing in Europe and Greece and the GDP fell by a third. Do you think they might turn against democracy, right? So that was the argument here. You had, you know, the sort of greatest economic, a huge economic in this part of the world. And I will fully admit that when I started this project, this is what I thought was going to explain away these divergences. I thought we were going to take account of economic conditions and that was going to be the answer here, right? But that it, maybe it's just that where the economy craters, people stop believing in markets, right? And so maybe it's economic factors. Maybe it's political factors, right? You could imagine again, if the world was such that people who lived under parliamentary regimes were more like democracy more than people who lived under presidential regimes, and then you got a plethora of presidential regimes in the post-communist world, that would again could explain why there's a distinction in attitudes. The key thing about all of these factors is that there are explanations for why the particular constellation of citizens living in post-communist countries might have systematically different attitudes on democracy, market, social welfare, social equality that have no 
recourse to the argument that people's, people's minds were changed about these ideas by the effect of living under communism. In a sense, the argument is you could plop down a whole bunch of people in other countries with those particular characteristics who didn't live through communism, right, and you'd see the same distinction. So that's the basic idea. That's what we call living in a post-communist country. Now, just to be very really clear, if the living in a post-communist country explained everything, it would still leave open a very interesting question of which of these are legacies. Like, could we call these effect legacy effects? And here what we do to sort of get into this is that we draw on the availability of temporal sequence. So, for starters, anything that's a pre-communist factor could not be a legacy of communism. Right? If it turns out that people who live in colder climates want the state to provide more social welfare. And if you're not a political scientist, these kind of geography explanations, long-term geographic explanations are a little in vogue right now, right? So this is not just a crazy idea. But if it turned out that that was the case, that living closer to the Arctic made you, and farther from the equator made you have more of a demand for the state to provide social welfare, and it happened to be the case that communism took place in countries that are farther, closer to the Arctic than it was to the equator, that would not be a legacy of communism. It would be an effect of living in a post-communist country. It's just when we go and survey these people, we're not surveying a lot of people who live really close to the equator, so on balance they're, less, they're more supportive of states-provided social welfare than a balance of people from around the rest of the world. But we couldn't say that that was a legacy of communism, right? because that predated communism, latitude and longitude. Now, when we get to contemporaneous indicators, it gets a little more complicated. So things that we measure at the time of the survey, right? These, by definition, anything we measure in the 1990s is, in a sense, a legacy of both communism and post-communism. But we can sort of have some common-sense approaches to this, right? So some things, like the percentage of people living in urban areas in 1992 is going to be much more a legacy of communist practices than it is going to be of post-communist practices. Some things would be more a feature of post-communism, right? If we really found this, this was about PMR, PR, proportional representation versus single-member districts in your electoral rules, if that explained away the distinction, that's more of a post-communist choice. It's less of a legacy of communism. You could make a convoluted ar argument. I'm sure that there are these other, there are legacy effects here, too. But that would be more post-communism. And then some might be equal instances, right? If we measure Poland's unemployment rate in 1997, that may be, in part, that is a feature of communism and what communism did to the labor market, but it may also, we would also think it was a feature of decisions made, shock therapy in Poland by the post-communist government. However, if we can measure variables at the end of communism, how the world was in 1989, while adequately controlling for the way the world was before communism took place, so if we could measure end of communism variables in 1989 while adequately controlling for pre-communism, that would be our sort of cleanest estimate of a communist le legacy effect, because it wouldn't be contaminated by things that happened after 1989. And if we could control for the way the world was in 1917 perfectly, which of course we can't, but if we could, then that would be our sort of cleanest estimate. So we can look at time to try to get at this question of how, how much of the legacy effects these living in a post-communist country factors are. 
And it's going to turn out, I'm going to show you the major evidence of the book, is that it's not these living in a post-communist country factors that explain it. But from a theoretical perspective, I just want to be very clear. We're not setting this up to say living through communism is, means there is legacy effects, and that living in a post-communist country means there are not legacy effects. It's a more complicated question if it was this living in a post-communist country. All right. So what's the alternative that you could have here? The alternative explanation, so this has all been this living in a post-communist country. Well, the alternative is it could be some form of socialization, this idea of living through communism. Right? Why might we expect the effect why could we expect that living through communism might have an effect on people's attitudes? Well, first of all, we have this long-ranging literature in, post, in the political science literature about political socialization effects. Now, most of this literature comes from established democracies, primarily the United States, but there are some useful lessons we can learn from it, right? This idea that regimes might want citizens to have a set of values, the idea that this process can occur across multiple agents, the fact that it can take place in schools, that it could vary across subsections of the population, and because we're going to hit back on this as we get into the empirical results and the findings, there is this interesting debate in the political socialization literature in the United States, in particular established democracies, about whether this is a process that occurs just in childhood or it's a process that goes on across one's entire life. So these are some useful lessons we can come here. The other thing is that if you were ever going to expect a regime to have a lasting socialization effect. It would be a regime, like Marxist-Leninist regimes, that were distinctly interested in inculcating a set of particular values in its population. There was this idea of trying to create the new socialist man. There were propaganda attempts that are associated with Marxist-Leninism, right? So if everyone expected to see legacy effects, it would be coming from something like a, 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 these communist regimes. Now, if you think that all regimes try to do it, and some do it more subtly than others, great. Then the, the lessons of the book have more validity. They have more externally valid. They have more lessons to be learned. But at the very least, we would expect this coming out of communism. All right. So what was communism? Communism in theory right, was politically this idea of rule by the proletariat, that the state not the market would run economies, that social welfare would be guaranteed by the state, and that we would have social equality. So if we're looking for attitudes that we think might be affected by living through communism that the regime might try to propagate, it would be attitudes associated with these basic precepts. Now, of course, those of us who worked on this, and most people know, it wasn't quite the same in reality as it was in fact, as it was in theory. This idea of rule by the proletariat actually became sort of single-party rule by the Communist Party, but it clearly was not multi-party democracy. Uh, in the economy, there was some variation across countries and across time in terms of how much of the economy was really under the control of the state as opposed to the market. But even in the countries that exper experimented with some degree of marketization, the amount of the economy that was controlled by the state dwarfs what you find in the rest of the world. Um, there were very real social welfare benefits. Say what you will about communism, but there were some real, very real social welfare benefits that were provided by the state for many years in communist societies. Although, of course, some people got more of these benefits than other people did. And then, and again, this will, as I said, this pops up a few times during the talk. Um, the, the record on women and minorities' rights is, is much more mixed. There are some elements of success in this regard, and there are some elements where the rhetoric did not actually match the reality. All right, so this is what gets us, this is the glue that holds together these attitudes that we're in particular looking at to see whether these legacy effects exist. So what's our theory here? All right, so we tried to come up with this idea of if we thought that it was exposure to communism 
that would exposure to communist rule that leads to these divergence in attitudes, that leads to these socialist picking up the attitudes, what's the simplest observable implication we could come up with? And the absolute simplest observable implication we could come up with was that if living through communism leads to the attitude in question, living through more of communism should lead to more of the attitude in question. That's the basic empirical strategy. Figuring out how to do this correctly took us many years, but this was the basic idea. If you think it's socialization, then unless you've got some really you know, sort of peculiar tipping model in your mind, there should be this positive effect between years of exposure to communism and holding the attitude in question. That seems like the simplest observable implication. Now, I will say that as soon as you start presenting this to people who study post-communist politics and you say, so what do you say if more years of exposure to communism leads to more attitudes of these questions, people will say, but wait a second, there are totally different communisms in Yugoslavia versus Russia, and there's totally different communisms in Russia in the 50s versus the 90s, and what about this, and what about that, and da-da. And so, um, one of the great things about collaboration <laughs> is that you work with your co-author and sometimes you bring different goals to the, to the project. My goal is to have a simple parsimonious theory that I could explain easily to people who didn't care about post-communist politics. Grigo's goal, I think, was to make sure that anytime we presented in front of an audience of people who are specialists in post-communist politics, they never once thought we were dupes and that we didn't understand some inherent subtlety about the post-communist experience. So we worked very hard to try to combine these two things, to take all these different things that people were suggesting to us in the course of, the, of giving these talks in the early years on the project, but also get a coherent theoretical framework where it wasn't just a sort of ad hoc adding in factors. So this is what we came up with. We came up with the idea that we could think about that, yes, all years of exposure to communism are not created equal. We completely agree with this. We've agreed with this from the beginning of the project. So the idea is, all right, so our basic hypothesis is more communism leads to greater, get, leads to more of the attitude in question. But if not all communism is created equal, how can we think about this? And so the analogy we eventually came up with to sort of organize our theoretical thoughts here was to think about exposure to the sun and sunburn. So we're going to put aside the normative implications of perhaps referring to the experience of communism as a sunburn. But from an empirical standpoint, if you think about it in this way, we do think that the more sun you get exposed to, the more likely you are to get a sunburn. However, if you're on a beach in Greece in August and you get exposed to an hour of sun, we think you're more likely to get sunburned than if you're, on, you're standing in Norway in December getting exposed to the sun for an hour. Right? So the intensity of the exposure can vary. However, at the same time, conditional on being on that beach in Greece and getting exposed to an hour of sunlight in Greece, if you're wearing a suntan lotion, right? Suntan lotion will be played by Catholicism in the play, right? <laughs> if you're wearing suntan lotion, you're less likely to get sunburn than if you're standing on a beach in Greece in August without suntan lotion. So we tried to think of factors that would increase the intensity or decrease the intensity of the exposure effect, and then other things that might provide resistance to them. And our sort of, uh, one of the innovations we made in this regard was to really begin to, it was to try to think seriously about the fact that there are regime-level factors that can do this, so things that we think vary at the level of the country in the year, and then there are individual-level factors that vary. And I don't have time to go through all of these. For those, some of you will be really interested in this, and some of you will not be interested in this at all. But essentially, we spend a large chunk of the second chapter of the book 
in detail justifying what we think the appropriate intensifying and resistance factors are in the post-communist context. And then we spent years of our lives trying to gather as much data as we possibly could to test as many of these things as we possibly could. Um, and the key thing I want to I mention is that like, the legacy, this is the legacy model. Right? This is the living in a regime model. And the idea is that it is years leads to more of the attitude and that you can think about intensity, intensifying and resistance factors. This is the post-communist version of it. This could be applied to other regimes. You could think about living through other regimes and what would be the appropriate factors. These are not general theoretical principles. These are things that we think of as very specific to uh, post-communist factors. And I'll just point out, you know, I'll show you some results involving all of these things later, but I just want to highlight one thing that surprised us was because the first thing everybody talked about was like, well, Stalinism is stronger than reform communism. And so we said, okay, that was the first thing we were going to do. And we said, okay, great, let's find the historian who wrote the article that classified all these regimes in the right categories. We'll just use their coding. And we couldn't find it. And so every talk I've ever given, I've always said, if somebody knows of that article, let us know. But we worked on this ourselves. We came up with these years. Then we crowdsourced it. I put it in the monkey cage. I invited anyone who read the monkey cage to tell us why we were wrong. At all talks, I put this thing up and asked people to tell us why I was wrong. This is what it is in the book right now. <laughs> um, but it did involve a lot of people giving us suggestions and comments on this. And we do think this is actually one nice contribution that we can offer to other scholars who want to look at sort of periodization of communism across different regimes. Okay. So when you put it all together, this is our empirical approach. We are trying to explain why post-communist citizens hold these systematically different attitudes uh, on these issues that are related to sort of Marxist-Leninist dogma. Um, and we think that it could be a factor of the fact that you're living in a post-communist country that has certain pre-communist conditions, had certain conditions at the end of communism, has certain current factors, and that we can think about these broadly across sort of all the big pictures, socio-demographic, economic, and political. Maybe that explains the divergence in attitudes. Alternatively, maybe it's living through communism, and the major prediction is more years lead to divergence in attitudes, but this could be modified by intensity and resistance to exposure, and these, in turn, could be country level or individual level. That's the idea. That's what we do throughout the book. That's what we do for all these different issues. The way we do it empirically is the following. The first thing we do is we gather loads and loads of data from large cross-national survey analysis so that we have data from citizens living in post-communist countries and citizens living not in post-communist countries. Therefore, what we want is citizens who got the treatment of communism, but it's now no longer a communist regime, and citizens who did not get the treatment of communism. Accordingly, we drop China, Vietnam, and Cuba from any uh, study because they don't fit in either of those categories. But anyone else, we can pretty much get into those categories. And nobody's got good survey data on North Korea. Um, well, then what we do is we add to this data set. The first thing we do is we establish the post-communist difference by just controlling for survey year that picks up global trends in these attitudes. And we basically put a post-communist dummy variable in. So we say, if all you know is that this citizen lives in a post-communist country, does that predict the attitude will be higher, lower, or the same, or not statistically distinct? Then the next thing we do, having established that this difference exists, and by the way, it doesn't exist in terms of gender equality, the next thing we do is we add in the pre-communist variables. We see, okay, if we control for the, what these countries were like before communism ever took place, does that make the effect go away? And we observe the post-communist dummy variable. Then we add in the contemporaneous variables sequentially, and then altogether these demographics, these economic conditions, and the political institutions and outcomes, does that make the difference go away? This is all testing the living in a post-communist country. 
Then, to sort of drill down and to deal with the fact that there's post-treatment bias in these kinds of analysis, we then strip out all the contemporaneous variables, keep only the pre-communist variables, and we add these end-of-communism variables. And we see, okay, could you explain this away by our most pure attempt to get at the legacy? Then what we do is to those big models, we add years of exposure. Um, and we add sort of the total years of exposure by regime type and by period of life, adult versus childhood, uh, by this kind of Stalinist, neo-Stalinist, post-totalitarianism, and uh, reformist, and then and the total years. And at that point, we're looking at the effect for years. So we want to see adding more years of exposure to communism, does it lead to more of the attitude in question? Then, in order to test all these intensifying and resistance hypotheses, at that point, we then drop the data from the rest of the world. And we interact our years of exposure, um, first at the regime level and then also at the individual level, we interact these intensifying and resistance variables with years of exposure. And at that point, what we're trying to see is, is there a positive interactive effect or a negative interactive effect? So that's the methodological approach. That's what we, that's what we do. Crucially, and this is thanks to people at uh, the seminar that Ola and I were at together at Oxford Nuffield many years ago. Crucially, we are very explicit. Everything that we do controls for age. So the years of exposure control for the age of the respondent. We are not just picking up what it means to be older living in a post-communist society. And if people want to talk about the identification strategy, there's lots of pages in the book. The basic idea is, actually, yeah, the basic idea is because we have surveys over multiple years, we're able to get identification on exposure as opposed to uh, independent of age. I can talk a lot more about that if people are interested. Okay. Now, one thing that I hope this book will be known for, we start every chapter with a joke um, from the communist period. Uh, we even managed to find a good joke for the methods chapter. Uh, and the joke for the methods chapter was a Radio Yerevan joke where somebody called up and says, says well, you know, Radio Yerevan is, uh, is Marxist-Leninism more an art or a science? And the announcer thinks about it and goes, it's got to be an art because if it was a science, they would have tried it on animals first. Um, so this is the, uh, this is the uh, joke for the social, social welfare chapter. You know, the paradox of communism, there's no employment, but nobody works. Nobody works, but everybody gets paid. Everybody gets paid, but you can't buy anything. You can't buy anything, but everybody's taken care of. So that's our joke for the social welfare chapter. You've got to buy the book to get the other jokes. Um, okay, what's our expectation in the social welfare chapter? It's that, from this Marxist-Leninist legacy, that, you know, communist citizens, post-communist citizens, will be more supportive of state responsibility for social welfare. What's the data that we use? So we're going to use, I'm going to show you data from four waves. The primary analysis is four waves of the World Value Survey, dating us all the way from 1989 to the end of the 2000s. The book very deliberately stops right before the onset of the Great Recession. There are theoretical reasons for doing that. Some of you familiar with the World Value Surveys know that they recently released another wave of the World Value Surveys. Had we added that, this book wouldn't have been out for another three years. So there's a nice real pragmatic reason, and there's a nice real theoretical reason for it. We are, however, extremely interested to see how this plays out after the Great Recession. We could talk about that more during Q&A. But the key thing to look at here is we get 211 surveys um, from 87 different countries, and of these, 68 surveys from 24 post-communist countries. So there are pros and cons of using the World Value Surveys, but in terms of coverage, it's sort of unparalleled. And we supplement it all with our own collections of aggregate-level data, for which we are internally grateful to so many scholars who worked really hard to collect tons of data and were committed to open science and made them publicly available. So um, we, you know, we have a new collection of aggregate-level data, but it's drawing on the work of many, many people who came before us. If I have time, you'll let me know. 
Um, one of the things we do to keep people from getting too bored in the book, instead of just running the same analysis four times, and in each chapter we have some supplementary analysis, where we do a deep dive into a particular question that's raised. If time, I'll show a little bit about that. This is part of the reason I'm showing the social welfare chapter, is our deep dive in this chapter is into this question of parental socialization, parental transmission. Um, and for that, we were really fortunate that we found this Hungarian household panel survey, which interviewed 8,000 respondents from 2,700 households in Hungary from 1992 to 1997 annually. So we actually have a... Now, the problem with all these surveys is they're almost never political, but there were a few questions in here about economics that we could harness for this social welfare chapter, but where we get the parents' and the children's attitudes and we get it in a panel format. So if there's time, I'll show you that, and maybe I'll just, I can go through it really quickly. That's the data. The dependent variables, the social welfare uh, support index that we use here, and then the statistical model is ORS with country year clustered errors and equilibrated survey weights. The equilibrated survey weights just take account of the fact that sometimes there's more people in one country than the other country in the survey. Um, I will tell you, just heading this off, we do ORS because the structure of the data is that we have way more level two observations than level one observations, but we have rerun all the key findings with hierarchical linear models, and we note in the supplemental appendix, you know, anything, the, the main results all hold from that. There's little things here and there. Okay, so I am not going to go through this slide, <laughs> but I do want to show you we took this really seriously, trying to come up with these pre-communist variables that could explain attitudes, the end of communism variables, the contemporary demographics, contemporary economics, and contemporary politics. Um, we can talk about any of these if anyone's interested. Here is the rawest of raw data, right? So this is just the average support, uh, this is, the variables are normalized so that the mean is zero and the standard deviation is one. This is the average support on our social welfare variable by country. And what you see here is the shaded post-communist countries. So even before we do any statistical analysis, before we do anything in here, you can clearly see you know, post-communist countries are overrepresented in the most supportive of state-provided social welfare, and they're clearly very underrepresented in the area where there's the least support for it. But it's also not the case that it just every post-communist country lines up and then every other country lines up after it. So there's variation here. All right. That's what the raw data looks like. This, in one chart, is basically the living in a post-communist country analysis. So what we have here, if you recall, the goal here was to see could we add variables to the model, theoretically inspired variables to the model, that would make this post-communist differential go away. So what we have here is the post-communist dummy variable. What here we have is essentially a recording of what variables we're adding. But very briefly, we start off with this significant over-support for social welfare among post-communist citizens. Once we control for pre-communist conditions, it actually gets larger. Once we control for, uh, once we control for, uh, let's see, this one is. Oh, this one we use more fancy statistical methods. We used entropic balancing to see is that there's a, some problem because of the way not having enough coverage across cases. Same result. We add in the demographics. Same result. We add in the economics. It gets even bigger. The effects is now getting bigger and bigger. When we add in the political variables, it drops down the size of the gap significantly, but it's still basically the same thing as the bivariate analysis. And this is all of the analyses together. And this is the results replicated just within Germany. The bottom line is, try as you may, throwing tons of data at this, you can't make this difference go away with these contemporaneous variables. So some support that political institutions explained some of the support for social welfare, some of the abundance of support for social welfare in post-communist countries, but clearly we're not explaining why all of it. 
this chart's a little harder to read. This is the deep dive um, into the end of communism variables. So at this point now we're looking at measures from 1989, our best attempt to get us get a clear legacy effect. And what we try to do is add things that we, ways we thought communism would change society, right? So this is all the sort of development factors, urbanization, literacy, energy and tendency, industry as a percentage of GDP. It makes nothing. The way that communism sort of remade society, that doesn't explain away the post-communist democratic deficit. Then the next thing we tried to add was these features that focused on equality, eradicating inequality. That doesn't explain away the support for social welfare, which was one we thought. Now, what does explain away a great deal of it is the fact that post-communist countries were less democratic. So adding in, in less democratic countries, you do have a situation where people in less democratic countries are more likely to want state-purported social welfare. What really makes it go down a lot is when you interact the share of how leftist the regime is with how democratic it is. So it turns out that when you account for the fact that communist countries were left-wing, non-democratic regimes, that does explain away quite a bit of the support for social welfare. But of course, post-communist countries are most of the leftist, non-democratic regimes in the world. So in some sense, that becomes almost a little bit tautological, although it doesn't always do this in the other chapters. But this is the one case where we see that if you look at how left-wing and non-democratic communist regimes were in the run-up to the collapse of communism, for left-wing non-democratic regimes, there was not a particular overabundance of support for social welfare. However, that still leaves the general overabundance. So we next go to our living through communism measures. This is the first key test of the analysis, which is just to say, do additional years of exposure lead to more support for social welfare, controlling for age? And the, and the answer to that is unequivocally yes. The next question is, does it vary by regime type, right? Does Neo-Stalinist exposure to social welfare and Stalinist exposure, sorry, Stalinist exposure and Neo-Stalinist exposure have a bigger effect than post-totalitarian and reformist. Well, this gets a little bit, a little bit complicated to interpret. We did this two ways. One was with country fixed effects and one was without country fixed effects. When we do it with country fixed, without country fixed effects, we find that actually the exact opposite of what you had expected, that reformist communism, exposure to reformist communism, has the largest effect on adding additional years of reformist communism makes people more supportive of social welfare. This was not what the theory expected. This is kind of a falsification of our idea that it was the intensity of the propaganda from the regime. I will say one of the times we early on presented this results from the social welfare analysis uh, at the Fundación One Mark, and the joint my colleague Adam Javorsky was there, and he sort of looked up when we said this result, and he said, but we were young, right? So this kind of, it introduced a sort of alternative explanation here, which is this nostalgia effect, which is actually a kind of interesting thing to sort of get at. It wasn't what we were originally thinking of when we did this regime stuff, but we started trying to take it more seriously. And the nostalgia effect would say, maybe the socialization is stronger when it's like not so painful to be living under the regime, when it's the sort of lighter version of communism. And maybe that sort of decreases resistance because it's not so difficult. It's totally an ad hoc sort of explanation. I do think these nostalgia arguments are kind of interesting. The reality is when you include the country fixed effects, you see no difference at all between exposure to different regime types. And when we run the hierarchical linear models, the one thing the hierarchical linear models do that's informative is that 
they always look more like the country fixed effects models than they do the non-country fixed effects models. So if your gut instinct is to trust the hierarchical linear models, it's just sort of more evidence that the world probably looks like this than it looks like this. So take it as, as what it is. Those are the results. That's what the data show. My sense is it's not that much of a distinction between them. And it's certainly not if we intended this, the country fixed effects, as a robustness test of here, it doesn't pass the robustness test. Now. What we then find is we move on to childhood versus adult exposure. And here we find a very interesting pattern that's mirrored in the rest of the book except for the gender equality chapter, which is that not what we were expecting, not what the original literature led us to, the existing literature led us to believe, which is that it was adult exposure that had the effect not childhood exposure. Or childhood exposure had an effect, but it's a much weaker effect. We're less confident in it. Um, and this is really interesting, because this suggests the possibility that this kind of socialization effect works different in a kind of single party propaganda state than it does when we tend to think about where socialization has previously been studied in democracies. Democracies, we've thought about it being the socialization effects taking place in the schools, taking place in the household. It's possible that what's going on under communism is that, and again, I co-wrote this with someone who grew up under communism in Ceausescu's Romania, that in the schools, it's kind of a joke. It's kind of lip service. You know, you're paying attention to this as a kid, but you don't really believe any of this stuff. It's just something you have to do. But when you get out of the schools and you realize it has some effect on your life, the extent to which you toe the line with the regime, that maybe that's when you begin to pick this stuff up, when you see it in practice. Again. We don't know. We don't have the research design to get to, to deal with that. We were setting up to try to test whether it was just childhood or childhood and adult. But we do find that this adult being more important than childhood is remarkably consistent. In all of our cases where we found the divergence that we expected, less support for democracy, less support for markets, more support for social welfare, it's always adult exposure that matters more than childhood. Now, this was so consistent, I began to be worried that it was something about the nature of the data. Because if you think about it, it's a weird kind of data set. We max out the amount of childhood exposure at 12 years. So what do you have? You have a bunch of people in the data set who have 12 for this variable. Then you have a bunch of zeros from old people in Eastern Europe who didn't, weren't exposed as children. And then you have a bunch of zeros from people who were born after the collapse of communism or who were born in the 1980s. But in this gender equality chapter, where we don't find support for the main baseline hypotheses, we actually see the opposite result. It matters for childhood exposure and not for adult exposure. And I'll come back to the gender equality thing again, but if you think what makes the gender equality result so different is that walking the walk as opposed to talking the talk, what's one place where communist regimes really walk the walk in terms of gender equality? It was in the schools where girls were brought into the schools, where girls were given equal access to education, especially at the elementary school level, especially in lower levels before you get to higher levels of education. So there's much more on that in the book if people are interested. We just don't have time to go into it here. But this is a very interesting, uh, we think this is a very interesting finding. And for people who are interested in political behavior generally, this is an interesting finding. Okay. Now we come to our country where the is. I'm getting pretty long into the talk, so I should probably, I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. The bottom line with the social welfare stuff is a few of them work. Not that many do. More of them work than would work by chance if it was just sort of randomly happening. In other chapters, we find more of these moderators working. Um, at the country level, we do see here that there's actually the opposite of what expected. There's a stronger socialization effect in countries where communism was imposed from outside than it was homegrown communism. 
Um, at the individual level, we actually find a couple more effects. We find that these are stronger socialization effects as we expected from Jowett's, Jowett's theory led you to expect it's stronger in urban areas. We found that uh, it is weaker among uh, Catholics and Muslims than it is among uh, Orthodox and Protestant, a feature of this Catholic resistance thing seems to be uh, uh, quite strong throughout the book. But a lot of these things, we don't really find much of an effect. Um, so I think the sort of takeaway from this is that we do find this more resistance for Catholic and Muslims, but we don't really find much of an effect for church or mosque attendance. Uh, we don't find much of an effect for education. We do find a larger socialization effect among urban residents. There's no effect for gender. Uh, at the country level, it was stronger where communism was imposed, which was the opposite from what we expected. You want to add hock that a little bit where communism is imposed. You want to sweeten the pot a little bit better. Maybe the social welfare is a little, benefits have to be a little bit stronger. People pick it up on it more. It's, that, that's ex post theorizing at its best. Okay. So bottom line on these, inter, on these, on these interactive the intensity and resistance, this is actually the least interesting chapter to show in that regard. In other chapters, there's more action going on. You pick up a little nuance. You know a little bit more than you would have without looking at them. But there's certainly no silver bullet that explains this away. And indeed, the effect seems remarkably constant across subpopulations. For the most part, this preference for social welfare among post-communist citizens is remarkably constant across different populations. And then when we go to the temporal analysis, we continue to see this kind of constantness. This is now breaking down by year. Um, the deficit, or the, in this case, the surplus of support for social welfare. This is the population as a whole. It's remarkably constant. This is not a story of converting to the mean with non-post-communist countries. Post-communist citizens start off more supportive of social welfare, they continue to be more social welfare, and they end up more supportive of social welfare. Now, post-Great Recession, maybe the rest of the world will have caught up with them and this deficit will have, will have disappeared, but this is what it looks like up to pre-Great Recession. When you break it down by children and adults, you know, it's, uh, it's largely the same. It, it, there's a little bit of divergence. It's not never particularly significant. It's still fairly constant. However, when we break it down by cohort, we actually see a kind of interesting pattern. What we have here, this is the oldest cohort. These are people born in 1955 to 1924. This is the youngest cohort, people born in the 70s and 80s. Interestingly enough, we see this strong convergence by the end of the time series. But as things, as the transition progressed, you did see a growing uh, deficit among the oldest post-communist citizens as compared to older citizens in the rest of the world, which kind of makes sense if you think that the oldest citizens are the ones who are hurt the most by the transition. But once we get 15, 20 years out, those divergence across cohorts disappear. And they disappear largely because the oldest cohorts come back to where the younger cohorts were, but there is a slight uptick, slight, in support for social welfare among the youngest cohort as we get towards the end of the, of the time series. So that gives you kind of flavor of what's going on in, the chapter, in that particular chapter. Um, can I take five more minutes? Is that okay? What time do we go to? Uh, well, Wrap it up? Okay. So I won't go into detail on the Hungarians, but I'm not going to explain. I'm, I will go. But the next question becomes, if it really is this exposure, what is the mechanism? And one of the biggest questions becomes, are people picking it up from parent to children? Because that has really long-term implications for how long we might think these things might, affect, might persist. So we use this Hungarian household panel survey to try to look at uh, this uh, parents and children. I'm going to go, go through this really quickly because we're sort of out of time. But we basically, we get a sort of measure for how much people prefer 
support, state social welfare support in terms of unemployment, in terms of people's attitudes towards unemployment benefits, if they should be increased or if they should be avoided at any means. And what we end up doing is we start regressing this based on sort of the parents' attitudes, trying to get children's attitudes based on their parents' attitude and their own lagged employment attitudes, and we include key demographic controls here. So what we find is that if you have both parents that accept unemployment, you're more likely to accept unemployment. And if you have both parents that reject unemployment, you're more likely to reject unemployment. So that shows the possibility of a parental socialization effect. However, it could also be completely endogenous. These are both being measured at the same time, so we have no idea if it's the kids leading to the parents. So the first thing then we do is we lag the parental attitudes. And as we lag the parental attitudes, we, interestingly what we see is that the counter-cyclical, counter-communist argument, the socialization effect continues to be strong, both parents saying it's okay to have unemployment or you should lower the benefits for unemployment, the sort of pro-regime attitude gets a little weaker. Then to be even more conservative, we control for your attitude at the previous take, at the previous um, period, very reassuringly. If you were less likely previously, you're less likely now. But even controlling for that, we still see this negative effect for uh, the counter-cyclical parents, and then we see this effect disappearing here. These are more robustness tests to see the extent to which this sticks up. We also look at whether this effect, because we have kids living with their parents who are between 16 and 18, between 19 and 25, and older than 25, does it get, uh, do these parental socialization effects get weaker as you get older? And the answer is yeah, they do kind of get weaker as you get older. Um, interestingly enough, they are not stronger in Communist Party households than they were in non-Communist Party households. So this is something, well, maybe it's like the dissident effect is stronger, and it in particular it's stronger with the counterculture thing. We try these Communist Party things in a number of different chapters. We find very little support for the Communist Party membership being these vehicles of socialization. It was interesting. That was sort of our best guess on this. All right, so the conclusion regarding social welfare, wrapping up now. Um, Living in a post-communist country's variables explain only a bit of the post-communist excess welfare support. The most important contemporaneous ones seem to be political institutions. Pre-communist cold actually enhanced the democratic deficit. In 19, if you were a left-wing non-democratic country in 1989, your citizenry was likely to be more supportive of social welfare. Um, living through communism, however, explains a great deal, but fairly uniform across regime type. There's some evidence and variation of intensity of exposure. The main, sort of most important one is this adult exposure marries more than childhood exposure. Urban residents a little bit more. Uh, religion matters, less important among Catholics and Muslims. And then this is the Hungary, Hungary results. Just to wrap up now, the book, what we find is similar to what I just showed you now. We find similar results in the democracy and markets chapter. Only political context seems to reduce the gap. Living in a post-communist country explanations don't work. They don't work nearly as well as I thought they were going to work going into the project. Um, what does seem to matter is living through communism, except for gender equality. The gender equality behaves consistently different across the board. I can talk more about that during Q&A. We didn't set up the study to differentiate why gender equality might work differently because we didn't think it was going to work differently, but we have a bunch of explanations for thinking about this. I've talked about some of them during the talk. This consistent adult exposure being more expo important than childhood exposure is a consistent finding across the book that could be of interest to a wider audience except for gender equality. Um, the modifiers produce nuance. There's no silver bullet. It's not really that I can tell you, oh, these, in these subsections of the population it matters and in these they don't. But I can tell you 
you do learn more about these socialization effects if you take account of these intensifying and resistance variables. They tell a more nuanced story. It varies a bit by issue, although the most sort of consistent thing is that Catholicism tends to increase resistance, which makes Catholics less likely to have gender equality as well, become more exposure, because resistance makes you less likely there. Um, but Catholicism increases resistance. Urban resonance increases intensity. And that's it. So thank you very much. There's a book. You can buy it now. Thanks so much for your time. Lots more of interest in it, and I'm happy to take any and all questions that you have at this point. Great. There's a question here at the front. There's a, there are mics coming around. Thank you. Um, my name is uh, Aviaza Tucker. I published a book on uh, the legacies of totalitarianism last year. So first, let me ask you if, if you get any mail from me, please forward. Um, uh, now, uh, l let me just ask you about socialization and the cohorts. Uh, first, um, when we talk about socialization, uh, as everybody, anybody who worked in post-communist countries know, uh, what happened in schools or ideology uh, and the influence of the family were not that important. What is much more long-lasting in terms of legacies is the survival skills, how people treat each other, unwritten norms, uh, uh, that they continue to treat their employers, other uh, citizens. Uh, and, and th that's where the continuity is. So the, the, the fact that there was an ideology of um, gender equality, and in the 70s and 80s, they needed uh, workers in the factories, so they took the women to work uh, in no paying manual labor out of their homes. That, that, that's not, you know, I wouldn't expect it to work. Uh, and with the cohorts, uh, what I think is, is much more important than any exposure they had to communism is what were their expectations for their future at the end of communism. And, and those expectations can work both ways. That is, obviously, uh, somebody who was uh, 50 uh, in 1989 or older, with many people, you would hear the, the expression, it's, it came too late for me. Uh, I have nothing to expect, so I want welfare because that's the only. And, and if you were younger, uh, then you would have, um, uh, of course, much greater expectations, and to, the to a large extent, these were fulfilled for that generation. And then, as the effects sort of even out, as, as the economy progresses, you would, you would expect it, but you see this kind of evening out. The other point about expectations is uh, for a certain generation, and that is really lovely if you look in the 90s the expectations of people for the future. Uh, the better the economy is doing, the worse the expectations for the future are. Because the whole expectation, all the history for the past 50 years is whenever you think things are good, that's when you, the, the other shoe is going to fall. And, that, and, and that's a very typical legacy of, okay. of totalitarianism. Great. Yeah. So an expectations question. Um, well, no, thanks so much. I will very much look forward to reading uh, your book as well. Uh, I mean, I think, actually, I mean, most of what we, we, you know, the framework, the data, and all the stuff we've put together, I think, can be used to answer lots of interesting questions. But I think, actually, the results that we find throughout the book are kind of fairly similar to the kind of arguments you're making here. I think data-wise, you know, I think this idea that the schools didn't really socialize people into believing in communism, there's some other chapters where we get into pre-communist education versus communist education, and there are some differences and important things in there. But this lack of the childhood effects, which is surprising from the vantage point of the American political socialization literature, right, it coincides with that. Now, we've got people in our sample who were going to school in the 50s and in the 60s, you know, and, the, and these sorts of things. So, but I think, you know, I think that's, that's exactly what we found. But it's, 
we try to start from the basic sort of a priori thing of like, okay, what would a, what would a legacy effect look like? And, and we've been interested in legacy effects on attitudes, on actual behavior, like protest and voting, and, and then evaluation. And, and in this book, we decided to focus on the attitudes, right? So we said, okay, well, what attitudes would we look at? And so we really did try to get a thing. In the gender equality chapter, we get into exactly these nuances that you're talking about, right? And so since you've asked about that, I'll sort of just briefly say on this. You know, we think the reasons, you know, why we may not have found the results in gender equality that we found in the other cases, we think there's sort of three kind of compelling reasons you could have. And we didn't have enough cases to distinguish between them. One is this one that I personally think is the most compelling, which is the same thing you're getting at here, which is the rhetoric versus reality. You can talk a mean game about social equality, but if you don't actually do social equality in practice, people aren't going to pick up on it. There are a couple other potential explanations that have been put up there. One is just sort of the centrality to Marxist-Leninist ideology, right, that they, the sort of markets was maybe the most central point of it, and then the dictatorship of the proletariat, the next most central. There's some interesting stuff about social welfare not originally having been particularly central, but picking up over time as a sort of pragmatic response. But clearly, it would meet, you know, at the end of the day, social equality and especially gender equality was not as central to Marxist ideology as some of these others. The other thing that's been raised that I think is kind of interesting to look at is the popularity of these things. So clearly, social welfare provision is kind of popular. People like that. Um, Anti-market state running the society is kind of popular. Now, not being democratic may not be particularly popular. On the other hand, a lot of these countries didn't have experience with democracy beforehand. But coming in and saying women are now going to be equal to men in societies where that had not been the case beforehand, clearly gender equality would probably be for a parts of the population in some of the countries on the less popular side of the sort of things that communism was pushing. We can't distinguish between those. We have four cases in this regard. So we don't have any way of teasing those out. But what you're talking about in terms of not this, it fits with this idea of not having the rhetoric versus reality. We talk about that in the gender equality thing. Um, the cohorts and expectations at the end of communism, I, you know, yes. And when I showed you the data that I was showing you right now, that really flat line, that was just the difference between the older citizens in the post-communist countries and the older and the citizens in the other countries. Um, I think there's a lot more that can be done with the cohort analysis and looking at it. And ultimately, you know, the only way we can tease out, right, we, can't, we, we worked really, really hard to ensure you that the estimates we show on those effects for the effects of exposure, right, are independent of just being old, right? That we can say. We control for age and all those analyses. Um, but to the extent that people who had more exposure to communism also had certain sets of attitudes at the end of communism, in some ways we can never quite, you know, tease those out. Um, but there are things that we do in the chapters where we look not just at the differences across the different cards. It, it's, the cohort stuff gets really messy to display. I was trying to show you some of the cleanest stuff. We can also look at the effects of the additional years of exposure across different cohorts, and we have that in the book as well. So I think it's all well taken, and, and, and I think a lot of the data overlaps with what you found, and I'll look forward to seeing the book. I actually have a question, which is to um, think more about the sites of so socialization. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and you hinted at it at one point about the possible role of the workplace mm -hmm. and whether there's individual level data on people's occupation to try to and knowledge about how certain parts of the economy were organized in different ways that may have an effect on why people think what they think about certain mm -hmm. things like democracy or the market or whatever. Right. So is there, is there any way to get traction on the kinds of work environments or workplaces that were people people were being socialized in as adults, if schools are being ineffective, that may be doing some of the work. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, to a certain extent, this is what we were trying. This is we use that kind of argument about the workplace as a way to motivate the men versus women hypothesis mm -hmm. that men were more likely to be found in factories where if we think this is going on in these kind of large workplaces why women were less likely to be found with some exceptions in the larger factories and we use that kind of an argument to mm -hmm. motivate it. I mean, we wish they had questions on the world value surveys that said where did you work 20 years ago? We don't mm -hmm. have anything like that. Um, you know, it you can do, there are some surveys you can find which ask people about, you know, which would ask people about employment questions. With the Communist Party membership, we were trying to get again at like people who were getting exposure to these sorts of things again in these big cross-national surveys, they don't ask these kind of questions. Mm -hmm. But it's a great point. I mean, I think that the reality, the answer to that is you're only going to be able to do this in these kind of country-specific deep dives because you have particular questions mm -hmm. that you can ask. And we didn't go into that level of detail because we didn't have the right data to do it. But I think it's it's a great question. And I think that, you know, that's not resolved by this book. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, <laughs> we had to end it eventually, like it's long and, you know, and these sorts of things. But like, the, the what's the mechanism, I think, is the really interesting question that raised by this. And we can only hint at it in different mm -hmm. chapters by sort of probing probing different pieces, but I think that's absolutely yeah. a, a big question to be asked. All right, why don't I take a bunch of questions yeah. and then answer as opposed to so, mo so I don't So there's uh, just here, this person, and then here, so this gentleman here. Alex Matoski, Davis Center. Uh, th thanks for the book and thanks for actually exposing this uh, while you were uh, working on, on, on it as well. Uh, it's probably good. Um, I have a question about uh, the, this thesis that uh, post-communist uh, variables uh, matter less than, than this kind of exposure on the, on the communism. Uh, did you, the, the final version, look at uh, the extent of the post-communist crisis in these societies as a kind of a uh, potentially creating a buyer's remorse type of effect where people who are under communism would live under the shock of shock therapy and as a result of that would have their act, you know, attitudes, uh, favorable attitudes towards communism uh, you know, reactivated and actually creating this effect. And did you look like in some of the surveys compared the 80s to the 90s uh, perhaps? Uh, and uh, the reason I ask actually because I've seen this in Russia actually, the buyer's remorse, whereas Russians in 89 would be very pro-democratic, uh, and they will completely flip uh, later on. Thank you. Great. And then here. Hi. Uh, <coughs> Sean Alabak. I'm an economics focus at the HES. Um, I am, I'm always kind of curious about the self-selection uh, uh, through emigration and wondering, yeah. uh, I guess you already know my question. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. Do you want to take those two or? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I'll go in reverse order. Yeah. So that's the problem. Right? There's measurement error in here. Um, that's, uh, you know, if we had mass migration where 80% of the population of these countries left or even 15 or 20% of the population, there would be issues related to this. We can't get at this with the data that we have for the big picture surveys. We're just sort of holding on to the fact that it's some noise. It should bias against finding significant findings in the data that we know that there was migration. We know that there is something about the types of people who migrate. Um, you know, we're trying to capture as much, you know, as much of that as we can and that there's some migration both ways. You know, there's more migration, you know, to the extent that there's migration within the post-communist world, that won't bias it. So what the problem is if people are going across. However, we do take advantage of, in one of the, in the markets chapter, we have, uh, we use this German uh, social survey which asked people where they were born and where they live now. So in that chapter, I don't have the data to show you right now, but that's one of the deep dives we do, which is to sort of tease out 
the effect of, is it really about the types of people who moved? Was it about, and it turns out, it really, it, when we do this analysis, if I remember correctly, it really was the case that it's the living under communism that matters. It's not the, it's not what happens when people, what people decide to do later. Those don't, groups don't look that different. It's the people who lived under it when, when communism was still ongoing. But we do have a section in the book where we try to get at exactly that with one of these deeper dives into one of the particular questions where we have the right data to do it. Um, yeah, I mean, Alex, I, you know, the main thing I can say is, like, yeah, that was, that was basically my thesis. Like, we'd find these different, we'd found these different attitudes, and I was like, yeah, of course there are different attitudes because the economy cratered beyond belief, like, in most of these countries, and let's just take account of the economy, and that'll make these differences go away. And it just never does. It never does. Now, are there more sophisticated modeling techniques that we could do to try to get at this, to try to look at, you know, differences, how bad was it versus how good it got? Probably. But I, from an Occam's razor standpoint, like, the main thing just should have been, like, we had the GDP figures. We had the unemployment figures. Like, that should have explained some of it. Um, we do do some, in some other papers, not in the book, we, we eventually, you know, we've gone through different iterations with how we've thought about this. There's some earlier versions of this where we try to get at this kind of expectations thing a little bit more. And, um, like, where, it, but we, it got complex and it wasn't clear that we were getting at what exactly what we wanted to get at and, and that sort of stuff. But there are some early versions, I have to go back and look. Um, where we tried to do some things like that. Like, again, our, our real hope is that when this book comes out here, right, this idea that there's this framework, that there are these kind of theoretical arguments, that there's these basic methodological approaches, now people could do different things with them, right? Like, we've set up the framework. You could put anything in for the economic indicator. If you want to put in, you know, deviation, you know, the difference between the mean, you know, mean uh, unemployment rate in the three years surrounding you're in right now versus the three years 10 years ago, you could do it and use the exact same framework and see if it does. And maybe someone will, will come up with something that gets a sort of better measure of the bite of the economy through that. Great. I mean, I think it's definitely an interesting question. Great. Yeah. Thanks for your presentation. I mean, I have more of a clarification question about the intensity of exposure. So you talk about factors that decrease the intensity. And I mean, I just looked very quickly at the slide, but they seem to be factors that were either pre-communist or external to communism. Or if you could say a bit more, if there's anything about communism itself that could have been a, a factor that actually mitigated the intensity of exposure. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want to? Oh, and yeah. Are you planning a sequel? You're planning a follow-up study uh, of uh, volume uh, uh, on the same subject, or are you going to abandon it? Because it's, it seemed to me that the, it, it, my initial impression is that there's, you, you're guilty of rushing to the general, rushing from the specific too quickly to the general. Uh, so that, I mean, if you're going to combine Eastern European data with uh, Russian data, uh, that a lot is lost in the, in the uh, I don't know whether the, I'm, 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 I'm accurately uh, criticizing you or not. Right. But, uh, 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 and then, because the, if you're looking at Russian uh, data, uh, it, it might, it, I mean, for, uh, hindsight is, is easy. So I, you know, I, I just, I mean, I apologize for, for, for invoke, you know, be, be using hindsight. But, uh, for example, would, would the subject uh, be interested in, in reinstating some aspect of the Communist Party in, in, in Russia uh, at this time in order to improve the safety net, in, in order to challenge the, 
neoliberal, uh, apparently ruling uh, ideology. And then we've got a question here at the yeah. back. Uh, I'm curious if you, if you maybe just like reserve 20% of your respond, respondent data and then find your strongest predictors and then use that to predict on your remaining 20%, which, which effects are the, are the most, the best? Of these intensifying and resistance ones? That's so interesting. All right. So I'm doing that all the time with the social media machine learning stuff. I never thought to do it with, I've never thought, I mean, we, haven't in, we haven't done that. Be interesting uh, to see. I mean, I think, I'll go in reverse order here. The, in terms of the intensifying and resistance ones, and this goes back to your, actually, this is perfectly with the main question. I mean, what started the whole intensifying and resistance, like we have to do with these moderators things, was, was actually exactly about communism. It was about being differences between Stalinism, between the true believer periods, and the reform communism, and the post-totalitarian lip service, and all this stuff, the Linz and Stepan things that have been done. You know, um, and so uh, that's what we expected to find having the big punch. That's where it all started from. We didn't find that much of a big punch from that. That could be due to data limitations. That could be due to this is a messy estimation strategy. But we just didn't find consistent evidence in that regard. And in some cases, we did find consistent evidence, like the adult versus child uh, exposure. In terms of the holding out, what do I think would matter the most? I mean, we have, so, and this answers both your questions. We actually, in the concluding chapter, we sort of go through, we have a big table where we sort of list out the ones that seem to work the most in the most cases and things like that. And you can go through and look at it. I mean, this is another place where Grigo and I kind of disagreed a little bit. Like, I think he, I felt like we got, we didn't have a whole lot of interesting conclusions on this intensifying and resistance, and he found them more interesting than I did. So my sense is like, yes, these things, you would, if you put these things into a predictive model, you're going to get better results because they're occurring, these significant effects are occurring way more often than they would by chance. There's some, and I, I, if I had to guess, I would say the urban and the, and the Catholic would be the ones that would matter the most, that urban was more intense and Catholic there was more resistance which is consistent with some of the existing literature, and we re-ran all the Catholic results dropping Poland. So it is not a Poland dummy effect, just to let everybody know that. Um, so I think that's kind of the answer to that. I mean, you know, some of these things are actually very communist-oriented, so if you look at the intensifying factors, this is the period of time that you were under Stalinist rule. This was another way to try to get at it as a kind of country level. Um, and then this is the kitsch-out variable, whether it's bureaucratic authoritarianism versus patrimonial... Uh, that doesn't work very well at all in this particular case. It's a very important concept. But, um, and then whether you liberalize during communism. So these are actually all things that, that sort of took place uh, during communism. Um, yeah, some of these are definitely pre-communist factors, but it kind of, that actually is theoretically a bit how we think about it, which is like, what are the things that would lead you to have resistance when communism comes in? Well, maybe you had democracy already. Maybe you, you know, the, the, maybe there was this, you know, places where, where, which had, had, you know, the idea was places with more development beforehand, it, you don't get the boost from communism. Like places that really had very little development beforehand, communism is seen as this radical transformation of society, and so there's less resistance to picking up what's there. So I, I think actually if you, it's a long slide, but if you read through that chapter, you'll see plenty of stuff that's related to what's going on with communism. Um, and just on the rushing too quickly to this, I think you're the first person who's ever accused us of doing anything quickly um, with this project, and my wife would certainly be shocked to hear um, <laughs> that take on it. Uh, 
you know, you got to make choices in these kinds of things. And that's why I started off with the really long part that's probably too long in the talk about why we did it on post-communism. Sure, you could run it on Eastern Europe. You could run it on the former Soviet Union. In the concluding chapter of the book, one of the things we do is we go back and run the headline figures, and we break them down by Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And it's not that different. So it, this is not a one being driven by one and one being driven by the other. Um, we think we have good reasons for pulling it. We think it makes it more interesting. Uh, you know, what we try to do is instead of just saying Eastern Europe versus Soviet, former Soviet Union, we try to come up with these kind of theoretically interesting things that pull out. But some of these things like pre-communist development, they pick out a lot of this stuff that you want. And it's also an interesting question. Like we guess are so used to thinking in, in, in uh, you know, former Soviet Union versus Eastern Europe things, but why might we really expect, you know, if the Balkans were it were very similar in certain ways to some of the caucuses, like why draw that arbitrary line? But we do rerun the analyses in the, in the concluding chapter. Just, just because the Eastern Europe is now in NATO. Yeah, so that's all included in the analysis. We put all of that stuff in there in these post-communist, in these contemporary political and political sections. So yeah, we take account of all of that stuff in there. By the way, most of this also ends, most of this is before that period. But yeah, absolutely, of course, those things all get picked up. Great, well, can you join me in thanking Josh for coming and talking to us? You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. For more information about the Ash Center, upcoming events, and future podcasts, please visit our website, ash.harvard.edu, and follow us on social media, at Harvard Ash.